0: Good evening I'm Sergio Verdoux Chair of the uh, University Committee on Public Lectures I'd like to welcome to the uh, last of the three series on lectures on the ethics of nation building This is also the last public lecture of the academic year uh, tonight, our speaker will be introduced by Fred Appell, who is currently the uh, uh, religion editor at Princeton University Press. He commissions books across a wide range of areas and disciplines and has a special interests in Islamic studies, Muslim politics, and projects more broadly at the intersection of religion and politics. And he's actually the editor of the book that Professor Noah Feldman will be published based on these lectures. Fred.
1: Good evening, and thank you very much for coming this evening. Um, as Professor Vodou mentioned, I am the religion editor at Princeton University Press, and it was in this capacity that I first became aware of the work of Professor Noah Feldman, Professor Feldman agreed to contribute a short piece to a book that Princeton University Press published earlier this spring entitled Islam and the Challenge of Democracy. I was very taken with this short piece and with his occasional pieces in, on the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and then I came to read his recent and very important book After Jihad, America and The Struggle for Islamic Democracy, published by Forrest, Strauss, and Giroux last year. This was clearly someone to get to know. I did some research, and I was still more impressed. A Rhodes Scholar, a D. Phil in Islamic Thought from Oxford University, a degree from Yale Law School, and stints as law clerk to both Chief Justice Harry T. Edwards of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and to Associate Justice David H. Souter of the U.S. Supreme Court, and now an assistant law professor at New York University. So I contacted Professor Feldman and asked for a meeting in his office at the NYU School of Law. I came out of that meeting with my head spinning. The range of his intellectual interests and talents and the depth of his imagination are truly astonishing. Professor Feldman recounted to me in a very matter-of-fact, unaffected manner the sort of books he would like to write in the next few years. These include, but are not limited to, a book on religion and law in America, a new intellectual history of church-state relations in the United States, a book of legal theory on the notion of rectification, a book on the growing global call for reparations for past injuries and injustices, and an historical study of the life and times of the 12th-century Muslim philosopher Ibn Rushd. This latter book, I'm pleased to say, is now under contract with Princeton University Press, and I look forward to publishing it after Professor Feldman somehow finds enough time to write it. All of these projects sounded extremely interesting, and his manner and genuine excitement in outlining these ideas made me determined to find a way to bring him to Princeton, to give him a series, uh, to give a series of public lectures that could then be turned into a Princeton University Press book. A later exchange revealed that Professor Feldman was also contemplating the ethics of nation-building, yet another project, drawing on his very recent experience as a senior constitutional advisor to L. Paul Bremer, U.S. Ambassador to Iraq. Well, one thing led to another, and soon a proposal for three lectures on this topic was on my desk. And thanks to the kind support of Professor Sergio Verdú and the rest of the Faculty Committee on Public Lectures, we have the good fortune to have Professor Feldman here with us this evening to give the third and final lecture in this three-part lecture series. In his first lecture on Monday, Professor Feldman proposed an account of why the United States is engaged in nation-building, and also an account of nation-building in general, an account that is morally defensible. This account was complemented by a stimulating introduction to post-occupation Iraqi politics, for politics is being played out in post-occupation Iraq, even in the absence of elections. In Lecture 2, yesterday evening, Professor Feldman confronted head-on the charge that inevitably is leveled at any well-meaning nation-builder today, the charge of paternalism. He outlined a non-paternalistic notion of trusteeship that he argues is at the core of an ethically defensible nation-building project. In tonight's lecture, Professor Feldman turns his attention to the proper goal of nation-building rightly understood, democratic elections, Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Noah Feldman as he gives his third and final lecture, The Magic of Elections and the Way Home.
2: From Fred's very generous introduction, you can see that with my absurd uh, overreaching and aspirations, I must have fit right in in Baghdad. The big difference is that... When I fail to deliver on these expectations, no one will suffer but myself. Those of you who have seen Ambassador Bremer give a press conference on television, and I imagine by now that's probably all of you, may have noticed the large and somewhat ungainly insignia of the coalition provisional authority that occupies a space on the wall roughly of this size just behind him. In a building called the Iraqi Forum, which is the preferred venue for public events hosted by the coalition provisional authority and buried safely within the so-called green zone in Baghdad. Well, it was not always so. On April 28th, 2003, precisely a year ago tonight, when I first walked into that self-same room, the Iraqi Forum, for a, for an ill-conceived national meeting of Iraqi leaders who someone on some list somewhere thought would be politically significant in the future, there was in fact in that space two things. First, there was an enormous outline of where a portrait had been. You can guess whose portrait that was. And beneath it, inscribed in very lovely calligraphy, was a verse from the Quran. And I'll translate roughly. Consult the people regarding the matter, says this verse. And when you have reached a decision, then put your trust in God. Now, my first reaction upon seeing this verse was that this was actually perfectly appropriate to the occasion in those heady and optimistic days of uh, spring 2003. Because this is one of the verses in the Quran, one of two verses, that speak of consultation and which are used by Islamic Democrats to argue for a scriptural basis for democracy. Now, needless to say, this is not the interpretation of the verse that Saddam himself surely favored. I have the feeling that the consultation was rather the latter part, uh, and the thought that you should put your trust in God once he had made a decision was rather the stronger. But the bottom line is that it was there, and it seemed that it could perhaps be co-opted into a more attractive conception of participatory democracy in a Muslim state. Unfortunately, Shortly thereafter, the removal of the portrait was followed by the removal of this verse. In the disorganization and really disastrous looting that followed the collapse of the regime, it became increasingly clear that the ideal of holding relatively quick elections for a democratic order that would emerge almost spontaneously from the collapse of the previous regime Was in no way practicable. And as a consequence of that, General Jay Garner, who had been sent by the US government to run something called the Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, was replaced by Ambassador Bremer running something called the Coalition Provisional Authority. Now it's worth just paying a moment to look at those names. Think of what General Garner was running Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance. Governance had no place in that description because it was not imagined by those who engaged in the planning, and I use the word loosely for the war, that any governance would be necessary. The governance, General Gardner said to the Iraqis memorably on that day in that room, would be left to them. There was a collective intake of breath when that happened. At the time, I thought it was excitement. About 15 minutes later, I realized it was panic. And... The coalition provisional authority, for its part, embodied a notion of an authority. In fact, the bland word authority, coupled with the even blander title that Ambassador Bremer took for himself, which was actually administrator, coalition provisional authority, he is the administrator of the coalition provisional authority, suggested, rather hopefully, a kind of bureaucratic regularity in running the affairs of the country. Either way, elections, from a literary perspective or from a practical perspective, were off the table nation-building had begun. Now, there's no way to capture the paradox of nation-building more easily than by thinking of the structure of the attitude that nation-building takes towards those elections. Think of it this way. According to the conception of nation-building, not only that we've been talking about over the last couple of days, but that is pretty broadly shared, the desired end-state of nation-building is a democratic state any legitimate democratic state whether it is in bombay or brazil needs to have elections attached to it that's just something that we take more or less for granted and as a consequence it's natural to think that elections are a desirable end state of the nation building process but you wouldn't have Nation building, and you would have no need for nation-building if it were possible simply to hold elections at the first moment upon arrival of the outside force in the country. And furthermore, by focusing on the production of elections, the act of nation-building draws attention to the fact that it itself is non-electoral. By specifying itself as a mechanism of bringing about a legitimate end-state, nation-building, in fact, undercuts its own legitimacy. As a consequence of this, I think we can see that the nation-building undertaking is going to be profoundly interwoven with the idea of elections and is also going to be profoundly troubled by it. Like the famous metaphor that Wittgenstein proposes in the Tractatus, nation-building presents itself as a ladder whose rungs disappear as the climber leaves each one behind. With its own obsolescence built into its structure, nation-building aspires to consume itself. Now, nation-building does not only view elections as a potential end-state of legitimacy. In the context of the ideology of nation-building, elections can also be seductive. They seduce us in particular with the promise of release. The siren of elections, if you will, calls out to the nation-builder, even if each nation-builder might hear the song a little bit differently a literary theorist with an ear for gendered allegory might say that elections hold out a hope of successful consummation. The seed of democracy is implanted. The door is open for a subsequent withdrawal. In this very troubling, I should say, version of the allegory of nation-building, the feminized occupied people grip the impregnating occupier in an erotic embrace that is both sublimely pleasurable and existentially terrifying. If it's going to be successful... Well, the occupier builds and leaves, but when things go wrong, he cannot get out, and he is gripped into what the American vernacular calls the quagmire, a situation from which he cannot extract himself, but in which he cannot remain without suffering irreversible damage. On this reading, Vietnam is the archetype of failure, and the angular cut into the ground that is the famous Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., takes on a new and rather disturbing significance. From the perspective of the people who are meant to be the nation built, elections are seductive in yet a different way. In Arabic, as in many other languages, the word vote is the word for voice. Elections hold out the aspiration of speaking collectively and in a manner that accomplishes the Wilsonian goal of self-determination. In this view, the nation's very reason for being, namely its desire to express itself collectively, is only fully captured in the phenomenon of elections. And to make matters even better, the nation that has had elections can throw off the yoke of the occupier and come into its full independence. Yet at the same time, people who are living under conditions of nation-building fear elections for what they might reveal. Specifically, many people will fear that the election will reveal that they are, in fact, not a nation, but that they are, rather, a collective of different sorts of people with widely divergent views who disagree about many fundamental things and who cannot practically live together. This danger is especially great in a diverse place like Iraq where there is the possibility, the realistic possibility, that elections could show not a nation capable of governing itself and making compromises, but instead a group of people who do not believe that they are capable of working with one another to produce the kind of pact that would be necessary for a constitution to emerge in the way that I described in the first lecture. On this view, one of the deep dangers associated with elections, again, from the perspective of those living in the country where the elections are meant to occur, is that the nation-building exercise will reveal itself to have been entirely pointless. Having begun by now st- Having begun by sketching a kind of picture of both what's appealing about elections and also, to a certain degree, what's frightening about them, I want to take a step back from that kind of rhetoric and try to sketch out for you a chastened, downscaled, and realistic account of what nations actually can and cannot achieve by elections in the process of nation-building. And I can state my thesis rather briefly. In essence, elections for a government should be part of the process of nation-building, but they cannot be the end state of nation-building. When an elected government is in place, nation-building ordinarily will just have begun. In other words, too much has been made of the redemptive power of elections, of their capacity to deliver a nation, but at the same time, in at least some circles, too little is made of what some of the benefits of elections actually can be. So let's talk a little bit about what elections can do right and what elections can do wrong. With respect to what they can do wrong, I've just hinted at it a moment ago, elections can in fact lead, under conditions of nation-building, to the election of the wrong people. Now, I've gotten into a little bit of trouble uh, for saying exactly that sentence and being quoted for saying that sentence, so let me amplify it a little bit. The wrong people, under conditions of nation-building, are people who don't want a nation to emerge, people who don't want legitimate government to emerge, these could include, in Iraq, those Sunni Arabs who are unwilling to negotiate on behalf of their community and to produce a democratic structure of government. It could include supporters of Muqtada Sadr, or Muqtada Sadr himself, who expressly say that they're not interested in democratic power sharing in the country. Um, or it could include simple thugs, our sort of post-Soviet model of the kind of person who sometimes emerges from electoral politics, just the best Mafia don in the country. The model of this among the nation-building classes, and there is a small sub-elite of people like this who runs around the world opining on such matters, uh, is certainly Bosnia, where elections, though repeated, I believe, were up to seven times uh, since the introduction of the transitional UN administration, have, on a pretty regular basis, led to the election of intransigent nationalists both on the Bosnian Serb side and to a degree on the Bosnian Muslim side, perhaps to a lesser degree, with the long-run effect that the impossibility of structuring anything looking like a nation in the nominal federation of the uh, so-called Republika Srbska and the Bosnian uh, Muslim section of the, the nominal federal republic has sort of been revealed as more or less a charade. So the wrong people actually can be elected, and this is a very great risk because if they are, The next logical move is one connected to what I spoke of yesterday when I spoke of the formation of mutual protective associations. If I think that the other groups will not participate in the production of a pact that aims to lead to power sharing, I will turn to my militia and I will do it the day the electoral results are announced. And in a simple prisoner's dilemma model, so will everyone else. And then the production of democratic order will really not be attainable. So there are circumstances in which fast elections can lead to the election of the wrong people. What, however, can elections do that is relatively important but tends to be overlooked by many people who focus on the grand narrative, if you will, of electoral politics, elections as self-determination or elections as a grand constitutional moment where the people look forward to shaping their polity going forward? Well, for one thing, elections do a pretty good job of a certain kind of accountability they don't do a good job of fine-grained accountability. Elections aren't very good, if they're held intermittently, at telling the government whether they have made the right decision on a particular kind of policy problem. might be a little different in a situation where a parliamentary government can collapse in response to a particular event. But if elections are at relatively regular intervals, they do a pretty good job of accountability only in answering the very baseline question are the people in power doing a good enough job for you to think that there's no one better out there to replace them? That's a very coarse-grained question, but in the context of accountability of a trustee who must be monitored by the electorate, that is, say, a governing trustee of the kind I spoke of yesterday who must be monitored, that's almost precisely the question we want to ask. And indeed, it is the question that we ask in elections most of the time in functioning democracies. So the accountability point is not to be understated. The other thing that elections do relatively well, again, not perfectly, is reveal the preferences of the voters along some dimension, namely the dimension of who was running for office. Let me say a bit more of what I mean. One of the handful of lessons that come from the collapse of the communist countries in the Soviet bloc that is broadly agreed upon by the very otherwise uh, deeply divided scholars who work on the subject is that it turns out that the market is pretty good at revealing preferences for what sorts of things, what sorts of goods and services the public wants to buy in what quantities. It turns out that the Soviet central planners, wise though they may occasionally have been, I don't particularly know, that's out of my bailiwick, did not do a good job of identifying what the proper allocation of goods might have been. Now, it's not that markets are perfect. Markets are full of failures. It's just that markets were better than any other mechanism for revealing these preferences. Elections are a little bit like that, perhaps more than a little bit. Elections can reveal better than any sort of polling can which political parties people would like to allocate authority to. And polling data, just like market research for a product, is only a dress rehearsal for the real thing. The real thing is buying the product, or the real thing is casting the ballot. Now, the consequence of this is very significant in an environment like Iraq, where one needs to identify politicians who are capable of actually negotiating their way to a deal that would share power in a way that might be durable. Consider the most serious problem that the coalition now faces with respect to the Sunni Arab population in Iraq. You may think that that problem is the armed uprising, but it isn't. The armed uprising is a very important problem. But more important than that is that there is no leadership at present who can easily be identified or even with difficulty be identified as capable of speaking on behalf of this large and important and deeply dissatisfied constituency. Now, perhaps such a leadership might come out of the uprising itself. That is not impossible. After all, in theory, the ceasefire which in theory, is operating even as we speak in Fallujah. It's a pretty sorry excuse for a ceasefire, since a lot of people are dying in it, but we don't know how good it is until we see what the non-ceasefire situation looks like. Might, In theory, that violence might lead to the emergence of people who can actually do some negotiating. Someone's negotiating the, quote, ceasefire. So perhaps out of that violence, some leadership could be generated. But it's far more likely that we won't generate a leadership that can do much in the way of delivering popular Uh, popular guarantees. By contrast, an election would at least, assuming participation in the election, which is a big if, would at least reveal whom the people of Fallujah, for example, would like to speak on their behalf. It might not be just one person, it might be a set of people. But the key point here is, much like the central planner in the communist state trying to guess what people need or want, right now the coalition is in the position of trying to guess who might or might not speak on behalf of Iraqis. We think that Ayatollah Ali Sistani speaks on behalf of many Iraqis, and I mentioned the other day that part of the reason we think that is that he could put 100,000 people on the street. But even there, we don't really know if those people would prefer that Ayatollah Ali Sistani speak for them, or if he was just the only person stepping up to the plate and offering some popular political view. The uncertainty under which we operate is profound, and it is a very serious problem not only in Iraq, but in any nation-building context where elections have not yet been held. Elections, in other words, in their preference-revealing function, play a key role in identifying those leaders who may be capable, and I don't mean to say that everyone elected is capable, but at least I mean to say that those who have not been elected are presumptively incapable of delivering a deal that can actually move the society forward in a serious way. Now, These two functions of elections, the preference, revealing, and the accountability, are not the kinds of things that one can just walk away from. But what's most striking about them, I think, is their relative modesty. They don't overweigh the significance of what elections can actually achieve. And I think that two of the most prominent objections that are presently out there in the world, uh, in the literature, at least in the United States, to electoral politics as a part of nation building, both make the mistake of overplaying how much elections can actually do. I'll mention them very briefly. One is the view of Professor Amy Chua of the Yale Law School, uh, who in a very provocative book called World on Fire, argues that market dominant minorities are profoundly disadvantaged uh, and endangered when there are elections under nation building conditions because of the risk that they will be expropriated by the majorities who are not market-dominated. Now, Professor Chua is not wrong to observe this phenomenon. One sees it all over the world, in the Philippines, on which she focuses very closely. One saw it um, in other places and other times as well. And her proofs are plausible ones, and they are a reason to worry about elections. But I would suggest that, in fact, the phenomenon of small and relatively wealthy minorities being expropriated is in no way restricted to the context of electoral politics. In fact, the people with property are in a lot of trouble every time political upheaval occurs, whether it's democratic or otherwise. So, for instance, in East Africa in the 1970s, when South Asians, many of them Muslims, were displaced by nationalist uh, inspired socialist-slash-nationalist-inspired dictators like Idi Amin, who expropriated uh, large numbers in Uganda, and others did the same in, uh, in, in Kenya, for example. Those expropriations were not the product of elections, but they were the product of significant political upheaval, and other examples could be multiplied. So my point is not that Professor Chu is wrong to identify this phenomenon. It's that it's a mistake to think that elections, uniquely and magically, are at fault. The other, perhaps even more broadly read, big criticism of elections in nation building, which one has heard in recent uh, months, is that of Farid Zakaria, uh, the editor-in-chief of Newsweek International, who, in a book called The Future of Freedom, argues that illiberal democracies are the great threat to increased democratization or the great threat of increased democratization. In his view, elected majorities will simply repress away the rights of electoral minorities and indeed of the bourgeois elites uh, who, in whom Zakaria places a great deal of trust for the process of democratization. Now again, I don't mean to disagree that Zakaria has some good instances of proofs for this phenomenon. This phenomenon is real. But I want to point out that there are many more illiberal autocracies in the world than there are illiberal democracies illiberalism is in no way from the regime is in no way the unique province of electoral minorities i'm sorry electoral majorities exercising their proverbial tyranny in fact it's very often the case that unelected leaders have greater incentive to repress away rights than do electoral majorities so again it's not that i'm disagreeing with his observations out there in the world i 'm suggesting that elections are not in particular the key to this phenomenon. I think what Chu and Zakaria have in common is that they're both slightly overstating the degree to which the fact that elections are the problem is the cause of the trouble in the context of nation building, and trouble there undoubtedly is. Now, let me speak a little bit about the entity in Iraq to which I've paid least attention thus far in these lectures. I've spoken a little bit about Ayatollah Ali Sistani and the politics of the Shia community, and I've spoken repeatedly about the difficulties of the Sunni Arab uprising uh, associated with Fallujah and the Sunni triangle right now, and so therefore of the Sunni Arab minority. I've also touched to some degree on uh, the Kurds and their interests. But I haven't talked about the people in Iraq who have actually played the largest role politically in encountering the occupation. And those people are some folks who are about to recede, I think it's fair to say, into the historical uh, horizon. So this could be a sort of, this little bit of part of the lecture we could subtitle, Valediction to the Governing Council. The members of the Governing Council were initially handpicked by the U.S. government, but not on an entirely blank slate. That's actually a very bad mixed metaphor. Uh, we were ha- they were hand-painted, but not an entirely blank slate. The members of the council who were the core members, so-called, initially they were a group of six, then they became a group of seven, were exile leaders who had worked closely with the coalition in planning for and indeed in advocating the intervention in Iraq in the first place. Of these leaders... Only the two Kurdish leaders had been subjected to any sort of popular election, Jalal Talibani and Masoud Barzani. Of their internal politics, I will say little, except to say that those elections seem to have been roughly speaking fair in the sense that they more or less split the Kurdish vote. Some of the smaller uh, parties don't exactly agree with that claim, uh, but I think it's more or less fair to say. And that they were fairly evenly divided is also demonstrated by the small civil war they fought between themselves immediately following that election. A matter we try not to speak of in their presence. It's not—it's not polite to bring up people's civil wars. It's lesson one that you learn when you get to Iraq. But they were the only ones. Barzani and Taliban were the only Taliban were the only ones with real constituencies in a meaningful political way. Of the others, I have mentioned uh, Ayatollah Muhammad Bakr al-Hakim, who was the leader of the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, who had spent the last decade in exile in Iran. Uh, and who was assassinated last July outside uh, the shrine of Imam Ali in the holy city of Najaf. So he was another of the major leaders, and since his death, he's been replaced by his younger brother, Abdul Aziz. Others of the leaders included the uh, internationally known and broadly reviled uh, head of the Iraqi National Congress, Ahmed Chalabi, uh, University of Chicago, Ph.D. in Mathematics, urbane, worldly, wanted in Jordan, uh, and uh, thoroughly devoted, I think it's fair to say, to establishing a secular democratic politics in Iraq. I, I don't believe that in any way, shape, or form was insincere as an aspiration on his part. And when questioned recently about what are look a lot like misrepresentations to the U.S. government uh, in the course of uh, the run-up to the war, his response, and I'm paraphrasing here, was... If you were trying to liberate your country, wouldn't you say whatever you thought would get it liberated? And I don't think it's easy to fault him for that. I mean, think about that as a moral proposition. If there's blame to be allocated for taking seriously overstated allegations of weapons of mass destruction or what have you, or indeed of the claim that Iraq was in fundamentally a secular place that would emerge into secularism and democracy and the free market overnight, the blame must surely lie in the hands of the policymakers who believe these accounts, rather than in the hands of those who made them. However, hopefully, nostalgically or strategically, these claims may have been advanced. Another key player was Iyad Alawi, who was a former senior-level Ba'ath leader and a former general, and broadly perceived within the U.S. administration as someone who might be useful if it turned out to be the case that generals in Iraq were willing to turn Saddam over, and indeed the country over, without a fight a possibility that was contemplated and indeed strongly encouraged both within the Department of State and in the Central Intelligence Agency, as has been broadly and well reported. Now, these figures hoped to have the country handed over to them, more or less in gross. And there were those in the administration who hoped to do so. As it turned out, Ambassador Bremer was not among them. And one of the first things he did upon landing in Iraq was to sit down with this group and tell them they were not getting the country. And he more or less said it in those terms. And they were not well pleased with this, as you can well imagine. And thus began a complex political dance between the Governing Council and the Coalition Provisional Authority, which has had many vicissitudes and which I think is nearing its final turn. But to make a long and, to a degree, I think, interesting story short, they hit upon the strategy of doing nothing. The theory being that if the Governing Council would do as little as possible to facilitate a move towards broad electoral democracy in which its members stood only a small probability of being elected to anything, the U.S. would find itself with little choice but to hand the country over to somebody. And as the date of handover became closer and closer, it seemed likely to them that it would be them, because there was nobody else to hand the country over to. So the first inflection point of the strategy was in November of 19... I'm sorry, of 2003, approximately six months after the fall of Baghdad, at which time the U.S. administration reversed course from its initial plan of Ambassador Bremer holding the country under his sovereignty for at least two or three years until elections were properly available. In a moment, I'm going to call that maximalist nation-building. And shifted to a plan whereby a government would be selected by a caucus process by the now-famous date of June 30th, 2004. Now, first thing to say about this is that it was a victory for the Governing Council, who were expected perhaps not to be the unique victors, but at least to dominate this caucus selection process. And consequently, they saw this as a validation. The Governing Council saw this as a validation of their strategy of delay. Again, not an unreasonable thing for them to think at all. Now, I don't want to spend time talking about why we chose the date June 30th. I think we should pass in silence over the coincidence of that date with the date of the uh, soon-to-follow Republican National Convention. I think we should not even venture to mention the thought that the schedule of our elections and the schedule of the Iraqi elections seem to be strangely coterminous. I think this would be unseemly. (laughs) Nonetheless, I think we could at least note that when one announces arbitrary deadlines in foreign policy, it leads to unexpected consequences. And if I could raise that rule one better, when one announces arbitrary consequences in Middle Eastern politics, the consequences are not only unanticipated, but are likely to be very bad. I think I would classify that in the Rumsfeld classification as one of the known unknowns. (laughs) But we did it. We did it. And we did it with the thought, at least the fig leaf of the thought, that if by announcing a date certain, we could facilitate the Iraqi political process in getting started, if we could kick-start the process, to use a phrase that Ambassador Blackwell is fond of, Um, then we would have a better chance of getting the Governing Council to actually do something. And to a degree, this worked, because the Governing Council did get up and generate the Transitional Administrative Law, also known as the TAL, or the Interim Constitution. Now, it can't be called the Interim Constitution, either in its text or publicly, because Ayatollah Ali Sistani reverting to the point that I mentioned two nights ago, said in more or less a single sentence, well, you see, I read in a book that in a democracy there are elections, and I also read that a constitution is the product of the popular will, and I'm not sure how these 25 people, the, the GC had expanded itself, I should have said, from 6 to 25, by a process in which we chose the other uh, 19, stands for the full Iraqi populace. He had a point. And his point was strong enough to freeze the Governing Council for some time and make it very difficult for the Governing Council to draft something. But they did eventually draft something in a complex negotiated interaction that, in which Sistani, to a very great degree, took the lead. And that document was, in fact, signed by the 25 Governing Council members on March 25th, I'm sorry, on March 8th of this year. So that was something. And the Governing Council did, in fact, do that after a lot of slow process. But that still left the question of who would get to be the government on June 30th. Now, notice that it was never probable, in fact, it was never possible for elections to be held that quickly if one believed that the greatest risk associated with elections is that they would reveal Iraq not to be a nation and thereby make the security situation worse, not better, through the prisoner's dilemma model that I mentioned a few moments ago. And that was the main reason that this coalition provisional authority did not want rapid elections. Initially, the objection was grounded almost solely in the worry that the wrong people would get elected. And again, I've tried to offer you an argument for why that's not a terrible or a preposterous thing to say. Over time, however, as the security situation in Iraq began to get worse and worse and worse, and by the way, I think it's better to think of it as escalating, violence escalating, rather than things getting worse, because I think we have a we have a heuristic bias that if we think of things getting worse, we think there's a floor, right? Because we started someplace in how bad things are, and we are imagining a floor. I think that's just an analytic mistake. I mean, I've never visited Liberia, but, you know, it's pretty clear that there's no limit to how bad things can get in a place. And so I think we should think of it as an escalation of violence, and we shouldn't think of ourselves as imagining that there's some ceiling to it. As the security situation gets, as violence escalates, I'm going to try and impose this discipline on myself, too. As violence escalates in Iraq, now the main reason to not hold elections, let's say by June 30th, is that no one could secure the elections. And a handful of polling places being blown up at 7 a.m. on the first morning of the elections, which I think one could guarantee with near certainty, might well lead to nobody showing up for the elections. You know, what if you held a national election and nobody came? That's a very possible scenario. So that has shifted to becoming the reason for not rushing towards elections. So now we're actually deprived, also, not only of the accountability function, we're deprived of the information-revealing value of elections by virtue of the difficulty of actually holding such elections. But the governing council, for their part, clung to the hope, and perhaps, as we speak, still clings to the hope, that come June 30th, someone will have to be made the government and it will be them. Now, the decision of the United States to rely on Lakhdar Brahimi to negotiate the content, rather the personnel, that is, of the interim government has somewhat affected the hopes of at least some subset of the initial governing council members. It was not good for Ahmed Chalabi when Lakhdar Brahimi announced in an interview that he expected that Ahmed Chalabi would not be in the interim government because Lakhdar Brahimi is nominally naming the interim government. But at the same time, it is very likely that many of the members of the senior executive group in this upcoming government will come out of that small group of initial players in the governing council because one or both of the Kurds must be there. There are 40,000 Peshmerga who will make sure that that's the case. The leader of the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq must be there because his militia of at least 15,000 makes that of uh, Muqtada Sadr look like what it is, a ragtag band of kids. The Badr Brigades, which is the much more important militia of the Supreme Council, has perhaps 14 or 15,000 men-at-arms, and they're a much more serious force. So they'll be there, and they were in the initial group. Now, Chalabi and Alawi are dispensable from the perspective of Brahimi, and they will probably go. Notice who was really behind the rise of Brahimi in this context, and then I will shift from this account to the question of sovereignty and its relation to elections, which will be the final topic which I'll address. But this is very important. Who was behind Lakhdar Brahimi emerging as the voice upon whom the United States must now rely? I mean, it was not President Bush, that's for sure. This is not a president with any great love for the United Nations, as if I needed to say that to you. It's Ayatollah Ali Sistani. Sistani told the Governing Council very directly that he would not approve a constitution that had certain features, and they took those features out of the constitution. At the last minute, he came up with a few extra things after they'd already signed the Constitution, which was very embarrassing for them. So he settled for a compromise. The moment the governing council signed the Constitution, literally, within an hour, he held a press conference saying that this was just a negotiating position and certain things would have to be amended. So he was calling the shots. And he made it very clear that he would not speak to any representative directly of the United States, nor would he validate any government handpicked by the United States. It was he, I mentioned to you the other day, who put an ending to the idea of caucuses as a mechanism for selecting the interim government. But Ayatollah Ali Sistani did say publicly that he was prepared to speak to the special representative of the Secretary General of the United Nations on these topics. And in so doing, he chose who his negotiator would be. He knew it would be Brahimi Fresh from Afghanistan. And he thought that Brahimi might be someone with whom he could do business. For his part, Lachdar Brahimi, a well-established and accomplished international diplomat, made a visit to Sistani, his first act upon arrival in Iraq, and knows full well that he can deliver no government without the approval of Sistani. If certain politicians fall out of the initial governing council group, it will be Brahimi who delivers the blow, but it will be Sistani who guides his arm. Now, how does this play into the question of elections, which are, after all, Sistani's personal strong preference? Sistani has repeatedly said that elections are crucial to a process of democratic development in the country, or democratic legitimacy, rather. The answer turns almost exclusively on the question of what sovereignty can be exercised by the unelected government, the unelected government that will now probably take power on June 30th. Now, notice that now Sistani is in the same paradoxical position vis-a-vis elections that I described the occupier as being in at the beginning of this evening's lecture. I said the paradox was you need nation-building to get elections, but elections point out to the illegitimacy of the nation-building process. Well, Sistani has now dictated the membership, or will soon have dictated the membership, of a transitional interim government which is necessary to generate elections and therefore legitimacy, but he will then have to deal with an illegitimate, in the sense of not elected, government in the interim. And the question of what authority and power that government will have and how it will interact with Sistani is now not only the problem of the coalition, though it is very much our problem, but it is also Sistani's problem. So what power will that transitional body be able to exercise? Well let's begin with the assumption that that body was vet, were vested by a United Nations Security Council resolution with nominal authority to do all the things that a sovereign government can do. That may not happen. That may they may turn out to have constrained powers. I think that's likely. But let's just say for the sake of argument they were given that. Would that make them sovereign? Not at all. Not even close. Because sovereignty classically is understood to go alongside being the power association with the best plausible claim to exercise a monopoly on violence in the country. Now, strictly speaking, nobody has that, no power association has that capacity in Iraq right now. But the power association closest to aspiring to exercise that monopoly and actually doing so effectively is clearly the U.S. Army. And it will remain the U.S. Army on July 1st, and it will remain the U.S. Army for a good long time afterwards. So what will happen is that the body exercising nominal sovereignty, the transitional government blessed by a U.N. Security Council resolution, will not be exercising actual sovereignty. That is going to lead to some serious contradictions and problems. Most notably, when that body tells the U.S. military to do X or not to do X, which it will certainly do, and the U.S. military does not do X, does not act in accordance with the wishes, the publicly expressed wishes, indeed they will probably be expressed as commands by the Iraqi transitional government. I can pretty much guarantee you that this is going to happen and happen quickly. It's already happened with the Governing Council. The Governing Council has already told the United States not to enter Fallujah, and for a while we delayed, but we are probably in the process, even as we speak, of going in in greater force, and we very possibly in the next weeks will go in in far greater force, over and against their wishes, Now, an Iraqi government will speak even more forcefully precisely because its only capacity to act will be through speech when it comes to matters like this one. Now, what does that tell us about elections? Would it be better if elections were held sooner and thereby legitimized this government, which would still then not exercise proper sovereignty in the country? Or would it be better to hold off on elections? Well, if one had a view of maximalist nation building of the kind that was originally imagined by, for example, Ambassador Bremer himself, in which he would come to Iraq and exercise de facto and perhaps I think he imagined de jure sovereignty over the country for the course of three to five years, then one would say under those circumstances that an election was not desirable. Better to acknowledge the relative democratic illegitimacy of the government while trying to make sure things go right and use the U.S. military to create a secure situation in which context it might actually be plausible, as I've discussed over the last several lectures, to get different constituencies to sit down and negotiate a pact, which would have as its desirable endpoint the transfer of actual sovereignty, not just nominal sovereignty, to the Iraqis. That plan seems very close to being off the table now. Or to be more precise, that plan is off the table now, and it seems unlikely to return to the table. Instead, we're in a realm of what I would call minimalist nation-building, in which the only thing, and I should add, incidentally, that that maximalist nation-building would very well be likely to be plagued by many of the problems of paternalism and conflict of interest of which we've spoken over the last several days. It would also have some positive aspects, but it would have those downsides. that I spoke of at great length yesterday. In the context, however, of minimalist nation-building, All that the nation builder or the coalition is ever going to be able to do in Iraq, at best, assuming we actually fulfill this obligation, which we failed to do in, for example, Somalia, and which we're failing to do in Afghanistan, is to provide basic security so that the government which is nominally sovereign can acquire actual sovereignty. That is, create enough peace and security on the ground so that the nominal government could actually build a military, build security forces, so that it could itself actually eventually take over actual de facto sovereignty. Now, given that that's the aspiration, the sooner we have elections, I want to suggest to you, the better. Because even though the government that will be chosen will be sovereign in name only, even after elections, it will at least be a government subject to the accountability and information-revealing advantages, or rather, benefiting from the accountability, subject to the accountability, and benefiting from the information-revealing advantages that elections can provide. Now, notice what it will not do. And if there's one point that you take away from this evening's lecture, I hope it will be this one. Elections held in January of next year, which is an optimistic time to hold them, will not express the deep and true essential character of the Iraqi people. They will not represent all of the things that the evening news programs will say they represent that evening. They will not represent the dawn of a new day for Iraq. They will not represent true sovereignty or self-determination for the Iraqi people. They are not going to represent the apotheosis of self-determination or the expression of voice. That doesn't mean they won't have some benefits. I've mentioned the accountability and information-revealing benefits, and those are important. But because they won't be all of those other grand, th- those other features of the grand narrative of elections, the grand electoral narrative, they will not be the endpoint of nation-building. Those elections will not authorize, as an ethical matter, the coalition to cleanse itself of its responsibility to provide security. Now, should the elected government, under those circumstances, specifically tell the coalition to leave, or I think it will be sufficient, should it simply refuse, decline to ask the coalition to stay, then we will really be on the horns of a serious dilemma to which I think you should all know my answer by now. If there is a specific request from this government, or the lack of a request the other way from this government, and it reflects, after an election that revealed preferences and that assured some accountability, a widespread belief that the coalition should leave Iraq, then we should go. Indeed, we will be ethically obligated to leave, knowing as we will the high possibility, the high probability that war could still ensue in Iraq, civil war could still ensue. I think it unlikely that such a request to leave would be forthcoming from such a government but I perhaps place too much faith in the strategic incentives that such a government would probably have. I'm guessing that such a government would prefer to be in power and have a chance of actually governing, which it won't be able to do without the U.S. military, rather than gaining a momentary bump in public popularity followed by the collapse of its actual authority. I could be wrong about that, and that's precisely why one holds elections because the guess in advance of what the Iraqi people would do or what the Iraqi people would like, which you're going to hear a lot more of over the next six months, as people increasingly say, based on polls and based on conversations and based on men on the street interviews, that the Iraqis want us to leave, we simply we don't know for sure that that is the case, and we will not know it until a democratically elected government is in place. And even then, Mark you, we will not know that the Iraqi people as an abstraction, want any one thing. We will just know that in a stripped-down, reasonable and chastened account of elections, a government is in place to which we ought to listen. But if that government does not want us to leave, and if that government, more to the point, wants us to devote significant further resources to the continued reconstruction of the country, under those circumstances, in my view, we also are not authorized to refuse those. Because the bottom line is that our claims that now that an election has happened, our responsibilities to Iraq are lifted, would be based on precisely the overstated conception of elections as the endpoint of national, nation building that I have tried to skewer here tonight. Now, how long would our obligations actually last towards Iraq? I don't wish to take the view that our duty will last forever. Eventually, people do have to take responsibility for their own fate, and when one hears former colonial powers in Europe speaking of their special obligations to their former colonial possessions, I see this as the bad faith of empire still with us, uh, even at a remove of 40 or 50 years. It's not the case that... All along the future, th- that throughout the future, Iraqis will be able to make a consistent and unceasing claim on our resources or our commitment. A point in time will come when the responsibility of the coalition and of the U.S. in particular begins to wane. That point, I think, will be the point at which Iraqis are exercising not only sovereignty in name, but sovereignty in fact when Iraq actually is capable of defending its own borders and delivering law and order in a reasonably just way to its citizens within. In the end, I think, we must recognize that Iraqis are not children reaching adulthood to be wished away. They are not a group of people to whom our paternalism will give a nation or a republic. I've tried over the last several lectures to argue that that sort of paternalistic conception of nation-building can't cash itself out, that it's not sustainable practically and that it is not sustainable ethically. I've tried to lay out for you a vision whereby our ethical obligations to remain are not directed primarily by our need to dominate, but are nonetheless practically informed By our actual interests. Now, that's a complicated argument to have made, and I'm very grateful to all of you for having listened to it so firmly. The point on which I wish to close is simply to say that nations must, at some stage, take responsibility for themselves. When Franklin was reportedly asked in Philadelphia what the Constitutional Convention had given the American people, he's meant to have said, a republic if you can keep it. Now, the nation builder no more gives nationhood than our own founders gave us a republic. But the challenge of keeping the government that one has cannot be deferred or delegated. The bottom line is that the nation builder at some point must make a clean break of it, and then all sides will know that nation building has been a success. We owe it to the Iraqis in the end, To let them stand or fall on their own, to grasp nationhood and sovereignty for themselves, and to keep it if they can. Thank you very, very much.
3: Time for questions. Um, Jason Brownlee, I'm in the politics department. Um, so I have a question about sort of the wrong people and, and how, to, how to deal with the wrong people. Because it seems like um, all countries sort of have this problem of the wrong people participating in elections. And so in Algeria, it was the feast, and so uh, the elections were canceled. And in Iran, the wrong people are those who oppose uh, rule of the jurist, and those candidates are sort of screened out and not allowed to participate in elections. And so my question is really... Um, do you advocate the inclusion of the wrong people in elections alongside the right people? Or do you favor some type of screening them out or, or some way of marginalizing them? And, and if the latter, how would, how would you see that playing out? What, what methods would be used? And uh, how could you avoid the types of problems that Algeria, you know, major social conflict, or Iran have confronted?
2: Well, my view on that, which I laid out at great length actually in in After Jihad, is that any political party that is willing to say that it is committed to the democratic process, that is to continuing elections and not to calling off elections, ought to be permitted to participate in an election. And that once that party is elected, the existing government must allow that government to take its seat. So I think that the problem in Algeria was not that the wrong people participated, quite the contrary. I think the problem in Algeria is that the wrong people refused to honor the results of the election, and it was they, by arresting the leaders of the feast and calling off the elections, who cast Algeria into the civil war that subsequently followed. And needless to say, I think the same about the reformers in Iran, who, if anything, are far more dedicated to the democratic process than is the government that has excluded them from participating. The phenomenon I'm speaking of when I speak of the wrong people is one that I think, in reality, one must be honest about. There are elections, especially in immediate post-conflict situations, where people are elected who want to continue the conflict. That's Bosnia. You know, That's poly-Serbs being elected after perpetrating some pretty horrible things. That actually happens in the world, and I don't want to be so wide-eyed as to say that that can never happen or that anyone who's elected is good. But I am saying that elections, and that's why in the nation-building context, timing can really matter. But more broadly, my view is that elections are for people who are committed to elections and to the basic principles of democratic governance, and I mean basic liberal principles, that I think are necessary, I don't uniquely think this, many people think this, are necessary for keeping electoral democracy going.
0: Listen over there. I would like to know who is paying for the United States military in Iraq now and after the passage of the so-called sovereignty?
2: You, sir, and I, and all of the other people in this room and the taxpayers of the United States. If you're going to play at being a superpower who can displace governments whenever you want, you're going to pay at being a superpower that can displace governments. We're doing it already. We're going to keep on doing it. And in the long run, if there is to be any real check on our doing this again, it is more likely to come from the pocketbook than from anywhere else. Uh, uh, I don't
0: need that thing. Huh? Thank you. Yes, yes, please. Yes? We are, we are oh, taking okay. the election. Uh, first of all, it was my impression that we were going to use their oil to uh, pay some part of the uh, uh, the cost. Uh, second of all, I just wanted to say that uh, it's a little ironic that all of a sudden uh, Libya is a welcome nation for us. I just heard on the radio that it's okay to travel there. Uh, it's hardly what I would call a democracy, and it seems to be functioning
2: now, according to President Bush. Well, on the oil point, there were people throwing that around. Um, I, I think most of them were being disingenuous, um, even knowingly so. If Iraq's oil industry were up and running and pumping oil at like nobody's business and digging into reserves, and the price of oil were reasonably high, I think most people think no more than 8 or $9 billion a year of oil revenues would come into Iraq. We just put $87 billion in for this year alone, and that was a supplemental uh, commitment of resources. So the reconstruction that's necessary in Iraq can barely have its surface scratched by Iraqi money. Now that money will go into Iraq, needless to say, um, and I hope very little of it will go into servicing the Iraqi debt. I will say that some particularly unprincipled people in the U.S. Congress insisted that a small bit of that $87 actually be put in the form of money that was being loaned to us by Iraq, thereby adding to the already enormous debt burden that the Iraqis hold. To me, that was entirely indefensible in part because we know it won't actually come out of the Iraqis Debt Service because it's so far subordinated to all the other debt they have. And I think that was the justification those people will tell you in private. They say, well, they weren't going to pay it anyway. We did this for our taxpayers at home. But what sort of a message does that send? You know, that we will take your money and decide how it should be used in reconstruction. I think that's that's a pretty lousy message, and I think it's also profoundly unrealistic. Sovereignty and the 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 sovereignty is somehow defined by the legitimacy of violence that the state exercises. That seems like a political theory sort of way of thinking about it. Pretty standard. Yet,
1: the legitimacy of violence seems to be also decided on the street, not in political theory terms,
2: but in who actually can do these kinds of things and what kind of consequences happen. What are the consequences of the United States U.S. Army, I guess, maintaining that legitimacy of violence? just in order to turn it over. Which is to say, what are the costs of reclaiming, it seems to me, this legitimacy of violence? Monopoly and, on violence. Yeah. And, excuse me. Yeah. Monopoly of violence. And how... In order just to turn it over. Can you talk about that? Because it seems like one of the sort of more interesting parts of your first part of this lecture. Yeah, I think it's a great question because it's what we're engaged in in Fallujah right now. Having failed, Having failed the Iraqis by showing up with no more than half the number of troops that we needed, but probably closer to a quarter of fifth the number of troops we needed, and allowing security to go down the drain or violence to escalate, we essentially created a situation over time where the only way we can reassert law and order in the country is through more violence, by sending more troops and essentially subjugating places that are challenging our authority. We've lost the monopoly on violence, and we're, as you say, trying to reassert it, and on my hypothesis, in order to hand it over to some legitimate government. If there were a way to reestablish a government that actually monopolized violence or came close to monopolizing violence, without our first putting down the revolt, for example, in Fallujah, I would be for it. Even if it included making some concessions to people who have taken up arms against us. The danger of doing so is just that it will send the message to everyone else in Iraq that the way to get a seat at the bargaining table going forward is through violence. Now my view is that that's the reality of the world. That in fact is a way to get a seat at the bargaining table and we would probably be best off acknowledging it in this context. So I myself think the best way out of the Fallujah crisis that we're in right now is probably, probably to identify leaders who can actually shut down the violence, assuming there are any, and cut them into the political process. Just put them in the political process right now. But that's a big if, that it depends on the empirical claim that there are such leaders, and it's very possible that there in fact are not. So that's a serious flaw, it's a fly in the ointment if it's in fact the case. On the other hand, those who want to put down this many rebellion or this challenge to authority have the view, and I think it's a defensible view, that unless they do so, no unified state can emerge, because the collapse of order is a domino model. And I think that actually is true. And the reason I think that is that it's been true in Iraq since we arrived. Look, last summer in Iraq, I was able to get in a car and just drive around, stop in a coffee house, chat with people, have conversations. And by January, no one in the coalition provisional authority was doing anything of the kind. Why? It really and literally is, I think I said this last night in response to a question as well, it's literally that over time, the fear that Iraqis felt of our authority, because of the power with which we had crushed the old regime, has gotten less and less as they've seen the limits of our capacity to enforce. It really is just a gradual realization that we can be challenged. And there's an argument to be made that the only way we can reestablish authority and therefore sustain our ethical duty to actually allow law and order to obtain, which is, by the way, also a legal duty under international law, to establish order in the area under occupation, is by putting down this rebellion. And that, that could well turn out to be true as well. I'll try to keep my answer shorter, sorry. One, one last question over there.
0: microphones here. Yeah.
4: International law issues, and something occurs to me in, in listening to your response to this last question, which is also a question about the trusteeship model you have, but it requires you to think about a period that you have wanted to avoid in your lectures to date, namely the period in which we were thinking about whether or not to launch this war and the rationales for launching this war. Why not talk about it now? Good Why idea. not? As the last question. So I take it to be that because we're talking about a trusteeship model, we'll dispense with Rationales that have to do with weapons of mass destruction and gassing and so forth. We'll talk about instead something along the lines of humanitarian intervention or democracy promotion. Something in the keeping with your nation building theme. So if that is, in fact, the set of reasons that we went in, then it seems to me that your invocations of international law beg a question, which is, shouldn't some new norms of international law be developed in this context, and indeed, wouldn't they pertain to the legitimacy of trusteeship? Specifically, I'm thinking, when we talk about an intervention on behalf of the people or in the interest of the people, I think the right model, rather than the laws of war model, which is a model, by the way, which is restrictive in some ways, but in many senses, permissive, permissive of kinds of violence that outside of the war context would never, Never be allowed by one state on another state. We should be thinking instead in terms of some other model, and I think here actually of the 9/11 model, of the kind of heroic model of people who sacrifice themselves to go into burning buildings and save people, people who go out of their way to put themselves in harm's way in order to act in the interest and for the benefit of others. If that is the way that we are thinking about it, then surely a higher requirement should have obtained in the conduct of U.S. forces with respect to a civilian population, which by our own description of the prior regime had no responsibility nor could be held accountable for the actions of that regime which brought this intervention on them. So given that fact and given the fact that our our troops, in fact, did not behave, even in keeping, it it apparently, with many of the international law norms, but let's say they did, still those norms were norms of war in which it's acceptable if military necessity or basically protecting your troops means civilian damage, collateral damage, killing of people, kind of the kinds of things we're seeing today in Fallujah, that's acceptable. That seems like a very unacceptable norm for a trustee to be held to and obviously undermines the legitimacy of the project you then embark on.
2: So I'm sympathetic because I think it's interesting to the thought that we might need some higher standard than the ordinary laws of war give us for rules of engagement if we're engaged in a humanitarian intervention. But here's my Thought on why that, that model also worries me a little bit And it goes back to what I said actually And something I said in the first lecture And I hope I can use it to tie one, one sub-theme of the, of the talks together One of the things I've been trying to argue Is that it's very hard to Because it's very hard to get nations to do things That their citizens don't perceive As being in their own self-interests We shouldn't have standards for action That set the moral bar so high That no one will ever act and I worry, I don't just worry, I believe it to be true, that if the US military knew, and the US public, that in engaging in a humanitarian intervention, we would have to put our soldiers under rules of engagement that endangered our soldiers' lives to a greater degree than they are presently required to, uh, than the danger they are presently subject, required to subject themselves to to satisfy the demands of international law, that would be an excuse for never going in at all. And we don't need much of an excuse for never making a humanitarian intervention. It's really more remarkable that we ever make them. I'm not saying that Iraq was one, but it's really more remarkable that we ever make them uh, than anything else. So I, I think that one of the goals of the ethical model I've been trying to press is one that accepts accepts self-interested motivation as the jumping-off point for the action that's going to follow. That, that's, and that's why I began the first lecture by saying the reason to nation-build now has got to be to protect ourselves against terrorism. Without that, we're not going to nation build. And it's why I similarly wanna argue that the ethical duties that we are, are subjected to are consistent, or at least not, or are consistent with that initial impulse. So let me try to reduce this to a simpler formulation. What I'm trying to say is that when we call publicly upon the US public individually, collectively, as citizens, to act in a way that we consider ethical, what we're asking people to do is to incorporate into their own idea of self-interest their responsibility to certain ethical norms. I'm not asking people to place everything else above them. I'm not asking people to act against their self-interest. I'm asking people to think about their self-interest in ways that incorporate some principles of ordinary morality, that they can live with. Now, that may be a quixotic undertaking. It may well be. And it is certainly a lot easier and a lot more appealing to make moral arguments that stand on strict principle and don't compromise or play games with the model of self-interest. For one thing, you avoid opening yourself up to the charge that all you're really doing is justifying something that people are doing out of self-interest. And that's what I tried to do last night. tried to say that maybe there are ways of constraining us that are practical and real. But the potential outcome, if we are successful, in marrying this concept of self-interest with some ethical duties, is that we might actually get something right once in a while. And in this last lecture, what I was trying to do is suggest, in the case of one practical problem, the problem of elections, that if we've incorporated... That self-interest model of the first lecture, and a stripped-down conception of trusteeship that imposes certain duties on us, even in our self-interest, then maybe it would lead us to a real outcome on a real practical problem that was better. The practical problem is coming. Those elections are coming, by hook or by crook. And when they come, there's going to be a public argument that's going to say, all right, we did it, let's go. And that's precisely the point when, if we've taken on board the other views, We won't go, that is to say, unless we're told to go. Now, some of you may be saying that the danger, the danger is that we're going to stay after the Iraqis don't want us. This is, after all, an imperial undertaking. You might turn out to be right, but with politics going the way they are and Iraq going the way it is, I think it's far more likely that the grave danger, the grave ethical danger and practical danger to us going forward, is that when all the temptations are on us to leave, we will just say, well, we've done our job. We're out of here. As I suppose that's the right line on which I should end. I, if I've done my job, then I can be out of here. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Brilliant.
4: That's, uh,